So if you keep in your Bibles to John 17, just to give you a little bit of a heads up on what we'll be preaching through, uh, at least the first half of 2023. Uh, For the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at this prayer, the prayer of Jesus in John 17, so a four-week study on, uh, on this great prayer. And then as we uh, prepare for Easter, starting in February, um, we will be preaching through a series on one of the minor prophets, the book of Amos. So I think it'll be uh, encouraging. It won't be quite as depressing as Lamentations was a year ago. And then as we get into the Easter season and post-Easter, we'll be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. So John 17 is an incredible passage. It's this prayer that Jesus prays to his Father. And in this prayer, we, we, we learn about what is really important to Jesus. It's also an interesting window into the Trinity where you have God the Son in the person of Jesus praying to God the Father. And in the prayer, it's very clear that Jesus outlines the priorities that he, he senses for himself and for the world as he prays for the disciples. If you re- remember from John 13 through 16, Jesus has been in the upper room providing uh, incredible teaching to his disciples on uh, really right before he will go to the cross. It's incredible teaching. And then he wraps up that teaching with this incredible prayer. And he's praying for his disciples, but he's also praying for us. Believers who would come after the disciples, who would be followers of Jesus Christ as well. Now, I really thought this was a good idea, you know, a couple months ago when we, uh, this was going to be the series. And then every one of the commentators, the scholars that I consult on a weekly basis when I preach, all said these kinds of things. John 17 is the most complex, the most powerful, the deepest. We're standing on holy ground when we deal with this. It's, it's so rich. It's so incredible. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to understand. And these are the guys I consult. I do want to encourage you because this text of Scripture is very rich. It would be a good way to start the year if you don't already have some kind of a Bible reading plan to take John 17 and to make it a major focus of your daily time in the Word. Reflecting, thinking about this incredible prayer that Jesus offers. So this morning what I would like us to do is to look at three priorities that are reflected in the opening of this prayer. See, in verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words. In other words, he had been teaching his disciples in the upper room. He then lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he says, and then he begins to pray. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I think the first priority we see in this prayer is the glory of God. Or another way to put it, the reputation of God. What is foremost on Jesus' mind here, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. 
Jesus is consumed with, with the reputation of God, that, that God and who he is, not only himself as the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, but also that he would glorify Father God, that the reputation of God would be understood, would be displayed. That his reputation, God's reputation, would be experienced by the very creatures that he had made. And of course, this reminds us, I think, of the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, uh, the first three requests in that prayer are all centered in the reputation and, and the plan of God. Remember, he says, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name, Father God, be hallowed, honored. May your reputation be displayed. And then he goes on, thy kingdom come, that your rule and reign would come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And certainly prayer is, is, is broader than, than just that. Obviously, in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray for our daily bread, pray for our needs. We're told to pray for spiritual protection. We're told to pray prayers of confession and forgiveness. Yes, of course. But as Jesus opens up this prayerful dialogue with his Father, Father God, the Son of God and the Father of God communicating, Jesus is consumed... Jesus is passionate, Jesus is praying that he himself as the second person of the Trinity in the flesh would be glorified, that his reputation would be displayed and honored, and that this display of the glory of the Son would would also uh, reverberate back to Father God, that the Son may glorify you as well. And what Jesus is concerned about, that the honor the splendor, the love, the grace, the righteousness, the holiness, the mercy, the forgiveness, all of the attributes of God would be on display, would be seen and displayed and understood and followed and worshipped. And of course, this is not some megalomania here. It's interesting, in, in the last couple of years, I've had a number of conversations with people in Princeton who say, I don't want to follow a God that's always telling people to glorify him. That's megalomania, but it's not megalomania. Because if God is truly the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most knowledgeable, the, the, the most glorious, the most righteous, the most holy, the most merciful, the most gracious being in the world, and he made the world, and he made us. Understanding and praising and, 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 and believing and, and following this God in all of his glory is the only sensible thing you can do. It's the only way to be rightly ordered in your own life. It's the only way to understand yourself is to be rightly related to the person and and, and the complete personhood of that God and all of his glory so that you can understand yourself and the world and how to live in it, being creatures of this incredible God. A couple of years ago, um, many of you know Craig Hoppe. He often serves in the cafe. He often gives rides to people to church. Um, His wife, Mindy, passed away this past summer. Um, And a couple of years ago, uh, Craig and Mindy invited me to their home 
uh, and Mindy was describing to me that she had just been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, which would eventually take her life. And obviously, it's a devastating diagnosis, and the prognosis was not good. But as Mindy said, as I tried to find out how she was doing and feeling, etc., Mindy looked at me and said, my one prayer through this ordeal that we are going to go through is I want to see the beauty and glory of God displayed in my life through ALS. And that was her purpose. I called her on the phone throughout that disease that has progressed. And I would often ask her, what can I pray for? And she says, I want the glory of God to be displayed in my life. And she made it a point with every doctor's visit and every procedure that was done to try to let people know that in spite of her illness and in spite of her poor diagnosis and prognosis, that she wanted to give honor and glory to God. I think we would all have to admit that if that was our passion like it was the passion of Jesus here, if that was our prayer, one of the prayers we would pray and think about on a daily basis, I think it's pretty obvious that things would be very different that we would live for this higher purpose, we would live for this higher goal, we would live in light of who God is in a deeper, more profound way. It would make a tremendous difference in our life. I do want to recommend a book that will help you in this area. I just finished it. I love the title, it's kind of provocative. It's called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Walken. It's a great book because it traces theology, starts with cre to Trinity actually, and creation, and then the fall and sin, and then redemption, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and the second coming, and proceeds to help us understand the incredible uh, sort of theory of, of how the world really is according to the Bible. And when you read this, I think you will be more convinced than ever that our God is great. Our God is amazing. And that everything he has done and how he's revealed himself in his word is to show this incredible glory and splendor and that in all of the things that he has done and, and according to his person, he provides us with this incredible rich way to understand him, to understand the world and understand ourselves it is amazingly, spiritually and intellectually so satisfying. The first priority for Jesus was the reputation, the glory of God himself. May that be uh, one of our main priorities. Well, there's a second priority though, because Jesus gets more specific in this glory of God um, part of his praying. He says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The second priority is, is that the reputation of God and Jesus, both God the Father and Jesus the Son of God, the reputation of God and Jesus is in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 
When you see that phrase, Father, the hour has come, you will see this throughout the Gospels, but particularly in the book of John, several times Jesus says, before this moment, my hour has not come. My hour has not yet come. And what Jesus is specifically referring to here is his death. His hour has come. This is why he has come. God in eternity past had a plan to redeem the fallen world. And that plan involved the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, putting on a human body, coming to earth, living and dying as our substitute, and rising from the dead, and then ascending back to the Father in glory. This is the the sort of penultimate way that the beauty and glory of our God is displayed. And so when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There's a specificity here. Is that in my death, in this hour that has come, my death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he's asking his father to glorify the son. And then the son in these actions that he he takes on, that the son may glorify you. And we know that this complex of events, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, are all together in the mind of Jesus because uh, verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus is praying, his hour has come, I went... Lord, glorify me, help the world to see the beauty and glory of what I am doing as the Son of God for the world, but then I I also want you to be glorified in what I do so that the world can see the beauty of this three-in-one God and the incredible gift of of grace and, and love and forgiveness displayed right alongside God's righteousness, his justice that he would oppose sin and that sin would be taken on in Jesus and then of course he says glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed in other words I want I need I want I part of what I need to do my hour has come as I will be after my resurrection I will ascend back up and be at your right hand ruling the world from the right hand of you father It's incredible to think about what God has done in Jesus through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It's fascinating about the crucifixion of Jesus. Is that crucifixion for the Roman Empire was the ultimate symbol of power and the ultimate symbol of humiliating someone that the empire was going to get rid of. And I'll read a little quote from the book I told you to order. Some of you have probably ordered it on Amazon even as I'm speaking. Thank you, but no thank you, right? The cross was not just a way of executing criminals. It was a statement of power, a living and eventually a dying message to any would-be enemies of Rome 
that they could be next. The cross is an instrument not only of death but of humiliation. Victims would hang naked. Dogs would prowl. Cadavers would be left to rot. Smells would carry. Birds would scavenge. But this is the amazing part of that cross. In the hands of God, the ultimate symbol of merciless, torturing power is subverted to become the worldwide cipher of self-giving love. Christ is lifted up on the cross like and so unlike the Genesis 11 story of the Tower of Babel to reach to the heavens. He is the anti-Babel, the counter-spectacle. cross of Christ takes a symbol, perhaps the preeminent symbol of Roman power and subverts its meaning from an uncompromising murderous declaration of imperial might to a message of grace and forgiveness. And think about this. The subversion in the cross has worked to a large degree. There are two billion people on this planet today. For many onlookers who are even outside the Christian faith, the cross is not ultimately a symbol of brute Roman power, but of a man dying for his friends. Of God reversing the murderous extension of human power in all of its corruption to demonstrate to the world the glory of a God who will subvert all evil and all sin through the death of his, of his dear son, Jesus Christ. The reality is we, we probably all could, could be more mesmerized by what God has done for us in the cross. All of us should be maybe more amazed that this God who saw us in our sin and rebellion would go all the way to the cross to display his glory to the world and the glory of his Father to the world to save people like us. It changes everything. I don't have time to go into all the things that it changes you know, we live in a society today that, that it actually seems far more judgmental than the Puritans, frankly. You make one wrong mistake on social media, you'll be out. You will be canceled. You will be crushed. In spite of the fact that the Bible is seen by many people in our culture as sort of irrelevant and a bygone book that talks about sin, what an old-fashioned concept, and yet there are many sins that are, they don't call them sins, but many things that our culture says, if you do this, you're irredeemable. Of course, it seems like every group, whether it's political power struggle or it's a group that, that has this as their definition of what the good life should look like or, 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 or what makes life work or what makes life valuable in these competing ideas. And if you don't share my ideas, well, I'm going to shun you and vice versa. The cross of Jesus Christ changes all of that.
Because in the death of Jesus, that is supposed to bring honor and glory to Jesus, but also honor and glory to God the Father. All of the different ways that we judge one another have all been rendered, outmoded, have all been torn down. Because in the cross of Jesus Christ, what allows us to get right with God is nothing to do with us and has everything to do with what God did in his son Jesus on that cross. We get right with God and we have an intimate relationship with God, not based on our performance, but based on what Jesus did on that cross to bring honor and glory to himself and to the Father. So performance, the way our culture often judges each other, is completely rendered far less important than we make it. I'll quote again from the the book that you hopefully are not reading now on your phone. Here's how it can change us. One of the many ways it can change us. If I am a Christian follower of Jesus Christ who's trusted in Christ alone, his death, burial, and resurrection for your sins. Those who disagree with me are not by default intellectually inferior. They are not rationally benighted. They do not lack imagination. They are not narrow, weak, or juvenile. They are not medieval. And they are certainly not a virus. They have every chance of being my betters in all these respects. I cannot look down on them. It is crucial to emphasize that this is no clever rhetorical flourish. If I claim to be a Christian and do not acknowledge that my enemies are very possibly my moral and intellectual superiors, I have simply failed to understand the gospel of Christ. I am still operating according to the performance narrative, not yet according to the grace narrative. The grace narrative draws the poison of prejudice and pride that seeps into any performance-based demarcation between groups. Tim Keller calls this the most inclusive exclusivity for two reasons. First, because salvation comes only to people who admit that they are failures. People whose only fitness is to admit and finally embrace the fact that they are not fit. And second, because grace is the great level leveler. It allows the weakest among us to come to God by grace. Just a minute, we're gonna celebrate communion. In a very real sense, we need to be more mesmerized about the reputation of God in Jesus, particularly in light of his death, resurrection, and ascension. Because that complex of events, that person, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, dying, rising again, ascending to heaven, changes everything about the way we view ourselves, the way we view other people, and certainly the way we view this incredible God that has poured out his life for us. What would it look like if every single one of us, 2023, 
was more captivated, more mesmerized by the glory of God in Jesus and the reality of his death, resurrection, and ascension. It would change almost everything about us. There's a third priority that Jesus mentions. In verse 1, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And then he gives the ground for that prayer request, so to speak. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What I think Jesus is saying here is that in eternity past, God gave authority to Jesus over all people. Now that authority was, I don't think was demonstrated fully when he was on the earth or even in his pre-existent self. I think that authority would be uh, sort of granted on the basis of his death, burial, and resurrection in the fact that his hour has come. Notice this, you know, he prays for the son to be glorified, himself to be glorified. He prays that the father would be glorified through him, through Jesus. And he said, you've given me this authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. In other words, what what Jesus is affirming here is that we, we don't come to God on our own power. God himself is the one who draws us. God himself is the one who who chooses us before the foundation of the world, sends his spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and then draws us to himself. God is sovereign in our salvation. But then he says, they have eternal life. This is eternal life. And so when we trust Jesus, we have eternal life. And that certainly means that we have life forever, but maybe more importantly, it means we have a new quality of life. Why? Because we know intimately through Jesus, we know the everlasting God who is eternal. Eternal life is not simply that we will live forever. Yes, we will do that. Eternal life means we have a whole new quality of life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has, and his ascension and his death has brought in this new quality of life. The life to come has entered the world already. And eternal life is having an intimate, growing knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is, knowing this God intimately, personally. What a privilege. What a privilege to know God. To know him. To know the one who made you. To know the one whose purpose is for you. He's the one who designed all that. And to be able to know him personally in spite of our sin because of what Jesus has done. Incredible gift of eternal life. This new quality of life. And I think probably if you're like me, it's, I believe all this stuff. I, I, I praise God for it. Sometimes I do. But it's easy in life to get distracted by all of the things we have to do so that eternal life and knowing God are not the main features of our life. We're too busy. 
to see what God has done for us. This third priority, the gift of eternal life, is knowing God. It's for all of us to try to orient our life and our schedule so that we can spend some time reflecting on this through the Word of God. Asking the Spirit of God to help us understand these things. Ask the Spirit of God to help us lean into this remarkable new quality of life of knowing God intimately and Jesus. All a gracious gift, just like our life to be alive is a gracious gift. This new life that he offers us, procured through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ given to us. And to spend time reflecting and living out of this new reality. The reputation of God, singular issue for Jesus. Are we living our lives in light of that glory, in light of his reputation, seeking his, the hallowing of his name, as the Lord's Prayer says? And the second priority, are, are we wanting to see the reputation of Jesus Christ in our own life, but in the lives of others around us, be centered in the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ? And lastly, are we allowing this gift of eternal life to, to, to lean into that, to be mesmerized, by the incredible opportunity to know God intimately through Jesus. Thankfully, we can apply some of this text even this morning as we celebrate the Lord's table.